today on The Arts Report. An experimental light box illuminates film at Pacific Cinematheque. Local poet Jillian Jerome nominated for Relit Award. Margaret Trudeau opens up about mental illness at the Chan. After the Quake, a play that mixes fantasy and reality at the Kulch. Singer Jasper Sloan Yip, foreign parts at the Film Fest, and Vessel, a thought-provoking dance exploring space, plus Jackass 3D package giveaway. Hello, and welcome to the uh, Arts Report for October the uh, 6th. Is it October the 6th? No, it's not. It's October the 13th, haha. <laughs> yes, uh, October the 13th. Uh, this is the Arts Report, and uh, you're listening to us on CITR 101.9 FM and CITR.ca. I am your host, Adam Janusz. And uh, we've got a, a great show for you. As you heard, there's a, there's a, ton, of, uh, a ton of content on today's show, including uh, Margaret Trudeau, the wife of the former Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott uh, Trudeau, and, uh, and much, much more. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you about... A, it's a sad e-tale, a sad story of, uh, of an online equivalent of a bomb going off. Um, this happened yesterday and uh, basically involved the email uh, inboxes of uh, radio DJs and uh, program directors all over North America getting getting an email explosion in their inbox. Now, let me, let me explain. So, uh, myself, uh, at the Arts Report, I get a ton of press releases from either publicists or just artists who want to promote their, their stuff. So they've got a, a CD coming out or a play coming out, and, uh, and I get an email in my inbox uh, to, to promote it and, and perhaps ask for, uh, for some coverage for their stuff. And, um, and same goes for like our station manager. They, they, uh, all all the, uh, the, big, the big wigs here at CITR, they also get similar emails. Now, something happened where a band named Chihuahua from Montreal, something happened where they, they sent out an email to every every radio station, perhaps in the world, perhaps all over, all over the world, who knows how many. And um, something went wrong where when people hit reply, it went to reply all, and it, and it replied to every single station in the world. And so what happened was that people wanted to unsubscribe from Chihuahua's mailing list and said, please remove me. And then all of a sudden, um, people like me and, and uh, radio people all, all over the world were getting like dozens of emails just saying, please remove me, thank you, goodbye. And then finally people caught on to this and were, were emailing going, uh, please, this is not a, why are you sending this to everyone? Please discontinue uh, replying all. This was very annoying. And this just kept going until um, some email boxes were crashing at some radio stations, which was making people furious. And they started sending emails, again, hitting, hitting reply and sending it to everyone in the world, saying, I will never play Chihuahua again in, in, in your lives. Your career is over. And then, and then people started laughing at it, and other people started commenting, going, this is the best thing that's happened all day. I love this. Radio people are weird and hilarious. And then it just spun out of complete control. There was a, a Facebook group created saying, like, I hate Chihuahua, which quickly uh, garnered more group members than, than the actual band had because of this. And then people just started promoting their stuff. There was some guy in New York going, uh, I'm filling in for uh, so-and-so's radio show tomorrow. If you want to listen, have a listen. Uh, there was, like, Radio Norway 3. Like, check out Radio Norway 3. It's great. And <laughs> it just went on and on until, like, late into the night yesterday. And... Um, so basically, Chihuahua's career is over. 
thanks to this. And, um, and it's very sad because I don't know if they even knew what they were doing when they sent this, 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 um, this deadly toxic email. But anyway, uh, just a note to any artist out there who's sending things to, um, to radio inboxes, be very, very careful what you're sending and who you're sending it to. Yeah, so that's, that's that. That's my story. If we have time on today's show, maybe we'll play a Chihuahua song as a sort of, as a sort of like a farewell to them, a memorial to a band that once was. Anyway, anyway, so uh, let me tell you what's on today's uh, show. We have Margaret Trudeau, uh, and she uh, shares her battle with uh, emotions, uh, bipolar disorder, and, and how to deal with uh, mental illness, which is uh, good for everyone to hear, whether you have been diagnosed with any mental illness or not. Um, it's certainly good to hear her advice. Uh, she'll be at the Chan. Uh, the playmakers at Pi Theater and Rumble Productions are working on a six-foot-tall frog for a show called After the Quake, and we'll find out what the heck that means. And we're also giving away a package of Jackass 3D swag. You remember Jackass, don't you? That's the one where stupid, uh, stupid frat boys would go out and do uh, ridiculously self-pain-inflicting things. Uh, one comes to mind uh, go- getting shot out of a, a porto potty. That is to say, a guy goes into a porto potty uh, with goggles and uh, the porto potty gets shot into the air and of course inevitably it turns upside down and uh, poo goes flying everywhere and, and it's um, and it's funny it's humorous and now they're doing it in 3D <laughs> poo flying in 3D so we have a package that includes some t-shirts uh, as well as tickets to a free uh, screening this uh, Thursday I think there's shot glasses and beer pong um, ping pong balls and other things so, so we're going to give that package away a little bit later in the show but first we're going to talk about uh, the wooden light box, which is uh, also known as a secret art of seeing. Alex McKenzie is a filmmaker, literally. He builds projectors, hand processes the film, even makes the emulsion. And on Monday, he'll be doing a one-of-a-kind cinematic performance at Pacific Cinematheque, hand-cranking his film projector, depending, adjusting his speed, depending on the energy and reactions of the audience. So uh, I spoke with um, Alex McKenzie. You may remember him. He was uh, interviewed for Brief Encounters a couple of weeks ago, and I, I rudely cut off the interview halfway through because, um, because of this, because he uh, talked about in that interview this event. So now we get to uh, hear, without any rude interruption, um, the story of uh, the wooden light box. It actually involved um, building sort of a hand-built um, from relic parts and pieces, um, hand-built 16-millimeter film projectors that I actually hand-crank as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when I'm presenting the piece, I'm in the audience, uh, surrounded, you know, surrounded by the audience, and I'm not hidden away in some uh, projection booth, and I'm cranking the film, moving it forward, backwards, slowing it down, speeding it up, and all the, all the content of that film as well is all hand-processed. Um, and some of it is actually handmade um, emulsions as well. So that's been that was quite an ongoing uh, labor of love kind of a project that uh, that has been with me for a while now, and and it's great because the beauty of the performative aspect is that I get to sort of transform it every time I do it, mm-hmm. and it can sort of grow and develop depending on the venue, depending on where I'm at with the piece. Obviously, there's there's a certain degree of um, pre-plannedness about it; mm-hmm. it's not entirely spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice to have that flexibility, and it really keeps the, the spirit of, of creation alive. 
instead of you know having finished this thing and, and then just sending it off to various festivals and not really knowing what's going on with it. You know? Right, and and there's a very large uh, performance aspect. So rather than being a sort of passive, um, you know, for the audience, uh, an experience where you're just taking in what's on the screen, you, you are almost uh, a performer, almost like a musician with an instrument, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm integrated, um, and and there's much more of a sense of yeah, the the maker's presence within the work and and really the requirement of the maker in order for the thing to move forward. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely got... It, it harkens back to a tradition that was, I guess, um, most, most notable in the 70s um, that was referred to as expanded cinema, which involved that very thing, where people were actually present with their tools and uh, manipulating projectors and film in a way that wasn't traditionally um, expected. Great. Well, we're very excited for these uh, projects, and uh, thanks for telling us about them. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that was Alex McKenzie, who's bringing the wooden light box, a secret art of seeing, to the Pacific Cinematheque on Monday, October the 18th. And it starts at 7.30 p.m., and the tickets are $10.50. But be, be warned, it's, uh, it's cash only. Cash only. So bring your cash. All right. Moving right along, we have Gillian Jerome. That's a local writer and UBC professor. Gillian Jerome has been shortlisted for the Relit Award in Poetry with her book, Red Nest. The Relits celebrate new works by independent book publishers from all over Canada. Now, we chatted about uh, Red Breast. Oh, sorry, Red Nest. Red Breast is a type of whiskey. <laughs> And uh, and other things. Uh, Red Nest, I apologize. And uh, I also asked her about um, uh, the book and also about a project that won her the Vancouver Book Award in 2009 called Hope in Shadows. But um, I started by asking her um, the question of, uh, of what's it about. And, um, uh, you know, I posed to her that it's a rather difficult question with a book of poetry because, um, you know, poems are sort of self-contained uh, pearls. You know, and it's hard to... How do you sum them up? How do you sum up uh, a collection of, of all these different uh, uh, themes and topics uh, into one sort of one or two sentences? And, um, and she agreed that it's tough. Have a listen. Yeah, I think it's hard to reduce a collection of poems to a sentence. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's tough, but I also think it's useful. Um, that's why people try and do it. And, mm. you know, often when we're in conversation with, conversations with other people and we're excited about what we're reading... Uh, we often ask what something's about, and I think that's a fair question. All right, so with that said, what's your book about? Uh, so <laughs> my Red Nest is about uh, motherhood. Mm -hmm. It's about um, living in a particular political and social time. Uh, it's about Vancouver and East Vancouver in particular. Um, and, yeah, it's probably about a lot of other things mm -hmm. uh, that... Uh, I guess you'd have to read it uh -huh. to understand the full extent of its subject matter. Mm -hmm. No worries. Um, now let me ask you about uh, Hope and Shadows, which okay. I understand um, sprang from uh, Legal Society's uh, calendar. Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so about two or three years ago now, my, my partner Brad Cran talked to the people at Pivot to ask if they were interested in doing an oral history project um, connected to their calendar project called Hope and Shadows, in which um, people in the downtown east side have the opportunity to take a camera out and photograph 
their lives, document their community and photograph their lives so that they're telling stories about themselves that are quite different from the typical media images and narratives attached to their community. So it's, very, it's a very empowering project. Uh, What's your sense of that area, you know, 2009, 2010? Um, you know, the Olympics have happened in that time, and there's been a lot of promises, a lot of social housing promises. And, I mean, a lot of people are sort of numb to it, aren't they? They, they sort of walk through it, or, or now they live in it with the Woodward's building. What's your sense of, of where it is today? Is, is anything getting better, do you think? Oh, yeah, I think there's all kinds of great things happening in the downtown east really? side. Yeah, I think there's all kinds of wonderful literacy projects in particular. Uh, my friend Ellie runs writing workshops at Carnegie, mm -hmm. and there's a wonderful project written about in the Vancouver Sun today. Amanda Grohall um, is in the downtown east side at the downtown east side women's center, and she has a really wonderful group um, called Intrepid Pens, I believe it's called, and she ha she has women some women who can't even read uh, writing about their lives. It's a wonderful, wonderful, empowering project for women, for very marginalized women in the downtown east side. And I would encourage anybody listening to go to uh, the Pepsi website. She's mm -hmm. actually posted a description of her project on the Pepsi website, um, and she stands to win $25,000 to fund and expand the project, and people just have to vote. Great. So that a great, there's all kinds of things like that happening in the downtown east side. So when we hear a lot of these sort of news messages about how nothing's changing, um, I, I beg to differ. There's all kinds of wonderful things happening in the downtown east side. Excellent. I appreciate your perspective. Thanks for uh, speaking with me. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for, for talking. And that was Jillian Jerome. Now, um, we do have a poem from, from Jillian, but uh, first I'll give you a little bit of info about uh, what she was saying, Intrepid Pens, which is the downtown Eastside reading and writing program that is up to, to uh, gain a lot of uh, a cash from, uh, from Pepsi. If you go to www.intrepidpens.org, you can uh, find out more about the program and what they will use the money if they win the money. And then there's a link to the Pepsi website uh, where the contest is taking place and uh, where you can sign up and actually uh, contribute your vote because uh, the, the, the two organizations with the most votes, you know, depending on the category, there's like, you know, health, there's uh, arts and culture, community, different categories, and um, the ones with the most votes get cash. So if you like the sound of this program, of, uh, of giving people in downtown east side an opportunity to, uh, to participate in reading and writing programs, literacy programs, then check out intrepidpens.org. Now, uh, as I promised, uh, here's a poem. Thankfully, Jillian uh, uh, had a copy of Red Nest handy and was kind enough to share one of its poems. So here again is Jillian Jerome. I have my book here, and I'm going to read a poem called Apiary of Underclothes. Um, an apiary is a place where bees hang out. After the beer parlor, we set off for the islands drinking whiskey from Tupperware cups. We jimmied the radio for baseball. Expos were up. I didn't know what day it was or the year. Finally, I thought a good-sized man and held the wheel. Strands of silence floated up between us like duck shit in the lake water. It happened right when the days held till 10 o'clock. Fireflies, June bugs. 
Every few miles, we stuck our heads into the slipstream to wet our eyeballs, both of us taken with the lights flickering on the dash. We felt ghosts hovering over the scab of last year's abominable fires. Have you heard so-and-so is having a baby? Well, no. Well, yes. I hummed my favorite Bo Diddleys, rattled off some names of local birds. Jays scooped it finally. When the car stopped, furs of dandelions flew around us, and we hastened like they did into that broom. And broom, by the way, is a an invasive weed, essentially, uh, that grows along the highways of Vancouver okay. Island. So wow. broom, but it's gorgeous. Broom is this gorgeous yellow bush. Uh, it's got a bush with gorgeous yellow flowers, I should say. Um, so when I when I say broom at the end, I don't mean the broom that you <laughs> like sweep floors with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean the bush right. with gorgeous flowers. That's cool. Um, That's very interesting that you're inspired by a weed. I like that. It's very beautiful when you, yeah, you know, um, it, you know, when you drive along the hi- the island highway, mm-hmm. there's this gorgeous, gorgeous, fiery yellow weed mm-hmm. everywhere. <laughs> uh, and although it, it annoys farmers and gardeners, it's really quite beautiful. That's Jillian Jerome, and we wish her we wish her luck at the Relit Awards, which will be handed out on October the twentieth which is next Wednesday, at the Ottawa Writers' Festival. And you can get more information about the other nominees for poetry and the other nominees for uh, novels and, uh, and the other categories at therelitawards.blogspot.com. That's all one word, therelitawards.blogspot.com. And also, uh, the Hope in Shadows um, calendar is available on the street now. Uh, the day I interviewed uh, Jillian, I passed by a vendor who was selling these uh, these calendars, and uh, Jillian wants us to know that um, that the the vendors who sell the calendars do get um, half of the of the twenty dollar uh, fee for the calendars, and um, and she's known that of two people in particular who who sold these calendars and were able to buy a used car from it. So it really helps out. It actually does help out the people out on the street selling these calendars, and the photography is, is beautiful as well. So if you see these people um, selling the Hope and Shadows calendars, um, give, it, give it up to them. <laughs> give it up to them, whatever that means. All right, when we come back, we're going to give away that uh, Jackass 3D package, which includes uh, tickets to a screening on Thursday, as well as T-shirts and beer pong items and more. So stay with us. Liveband.com is Vancouver's community-driven concert calendar. New shows are added daily by the city's most active promoters, musicians, and by the driving force of the music scene, the fans. Liveband.com's listings are different because they are integrated with profiles updated by bands and business owners as they promote upcoming events. Check out the archives to see how closely we've worked within the community to put on the shows you love. Visit LiveMusicVancouver.com for the latest independent and major label event listings. LiveVan.com, Vancouver's community-driven concert calendar. Uh, we're back on the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. And uh, still on the show, we will be talking about Vessel, a dance uh, production. Uh, after the Quake, a play that includes a six-foot-tall frog. We'll find out about that. Um, as well as Jasper Sloan Yip. 
the uh, curiously named musician who's doing uh, a lot of shows and has been charting well on CBC Radio 3 and, uh, and coverage of the Film Fest as well. Uh, but first, we have Margaret Trudeau the wife of former Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who, by the way, was recently voted the best as well as third worst Prime Minister of the last 60 years, probably not by the same people. Um, she's written a memoir called Changing My Mind, where she opens up about her battle with bipolar disorder. She will be sharing her story on uh, sorry, Sunday, October 17th, at the Chan Centre. And Arts Report contributor Sarah Lapsley spoke to her from Toronto. So I just wondered if you could talk a bit about how bipolar disorder has manifested in your life and how you might look at it differently now that you've received a diagnosis in 2006? Well, no, I actually um, received my diagnosis in, in, in 1973 oh. um, when I first had my first bout of postpartum depression, and that, which was followed by mania. No, maybe it was a few years after that, but it was in the early 70s. Uh, we were proactive, Pierre and I, as everyone should be, when the light suddenly goes out and and someone in your family, uh, depression took me in a very dark and, and bewildering place uh, after the birth of my second child. And, and I was sort of patted on the head. We went and saw a psychiatrist, and he told me that I had baby blues. I didn't have baby blues. What I had was in an, uh, a chemical imbalance in my brain. There was too much of the chemical dopamine, which is the drug, that, the chemical in our brain that's responsible for our creativity, for our imagination, for our, our zest for life. Uh, it gets you dancing. And then the serotonin, the other end of the spectrum, not enough serotonin, uh, will keep you in depression for a long time. So getting those chemicals sorted out in the 70s was impossible because they didn't even know about them. They didn't know their effect. It wasn't until 1985 that uh, the first antidepressants came on the market, the Prozac and such, that actually replaced the serotonin that was missing from, from my brain. So that was a great breakthrough that I could get out of depression. Um, but the problem was that I had lived so long with being bipolar that uh, the triggers um, usually were at times when I was going through hormonal fluctuations as well. They seemed to trigger me into into depression or mania, uh, weaning a baby, having a baby, um, you know, uh, going into menopause. All those things when my hormones were fluctuating also triggered me into pretty pretty um, awful episodes of either deep deep depression or much too high mania. So, at what point did you feel your recovery really started? And in, in like many things, um, Sarah, I had to be at rock bottom and. After the death, uh, the death of my son, grief, mm -hmm. of course, was a huge trigger for my condition or predicament, the bipolar condition, and I, I um, handled it just terribly. I, I didn't do anything right that I should have done, um, and my family should have done for me at that time, because I was still in such denial that, that I had a problem, and I was still blaming others for my sorry life and my sorry state I was in, and not taking responsibility for it myself. And in fact, I was. After Pierre's death, I'd given, I'd lost my will to live as well, and I'd stopped eating. So by the time I got into the hospital, not only was I, I very manic and complete, full, severe mania uh, in 2000, but I also um, was very malnourished. So my brain was malnourished. Well, you know, when you starve yourself, you're not 
just making a pretty body, or so you think so. You're also starving your brain, mm -hmm. and you can end up being in a very, very sorry state. So I'd lost uh, 30 pounds of weight, and I, I, I was at the end, and my family intervened and got me into the hospital, which I resisted with every strength, every bit of strength. And a manic person has quite a bit of strength, mm -hmm. and uh, all wrong strength, misdirected strength. And then I got the help. I was given the choice. Either I could choose sanity, I could choose to, to, to follow my doctor's advice and we'd set up a program of, of recovery for me, or I could go leave the hospital and probably die. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a hard choice because I have beautiful children uh, and I, I wanted to live. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. So once you got on the road to recovery, what strategies do you use? The, the, the first tool, of course, is getting my brain balanced mm -hmm. and uh, it chemically, and, and that was an awful process, a long one, because some drugs made me too sleepy, some drugs made me never sleep, some drugs made me fat, you know, the whole thing you go through trying to work out just what is the right magic potion that will correct the dysfunction in your brain. So once that was done, that was a relief that we found the right medication, mood stabilizers and antidepressants. And then the big work started of changing the way I think because uh, when you've been bipolar for so long, um, your brain becomes habituated to the wrong way of thinking. Without constancy in your life, with never being able to predict how you're going to be, um, whether you're going to be up or down or, you know, you love me today, but what about tomorrow? Mm -hmm. There was no constancy in my life. I couldn't plan for anything. I couldn't get deeply involved with, with people other than my family and my children, which my commitment was always so strong to. But it was a very hard three years, or almost five years, really, of cognitive behavioral therapy to change my mind, change the way I thought, to give me, give up guilt and fear and, and wincing every time I thought about my past and forgiving myself and forgiving others who didn't understand what I was going through and looking at the positive side of life. So eating, sleeping well and playing well and taking your medication mm -hmm. are the things that you have to do. Those are the tools I was given. Also meditation, yoga, um, hypnosis, uh, we tried everything. Great. So cognitive behavioral therapy has worked for you. Oh, yes. Uh, two types. In my book at the end, I have three doctors who, who talk about two of my doctors um, and Dr. Misery from the Women's uh, Mental Health Center at, at UBC at the Women's Hospital. Uh, not UBC, at the Women's Hospital in Vancouver. Uh, uh, Shayla Misery, she talks about uh, postpartum depression and how it affects uh, uh, bipolar people. And my doctors talk about the kind of drugs, the regimes they took and, and how, they do, how they did it. So it's all in there. I, I hope I'm going to be able to share uh, the tools that, that I was given because I'm very grateful. Mm -hmm. I, I can't even tell you how grateful I am that I, I was able to win this battle with my mental, uh, mental illness. And that was Margaret Trudeau. So an intimate evening with Margaret Trudeau at the Chan Center is coming uh, Sunday. October the 17th, and it begins at 8 p.m. Tickets are 42.50 for adults, 39.50 for seniors, and 29.50 for students, which is a really good deal if you happen to be a university student. And you can purchase tickets at Ticketmaster.ca or in person here at the, the uh, at the UBC campus at the Chan Center Ticket Office. All right. So as promised, now I have a, a package, a jackass. 
package, Jackass 3D package to give away to you, including passes to see a screening, premiere screen, screening on uh, Thursday night, as well as some lovely uh, T-shirts and, uh, and, other, and other paraphernalia. So if you're interested in the Jackass 3D package, now is the time to call me. The number is 604-822-2487. That's 604-UBC-CITR. So give me a ring right now, and in the meantime, we will take a short break, so stay with us. UBC's Museum of Anthropology displays long-term and visiting exhibits of indigenous art from around the world, and guided tours are free. Our permanent collection features one of the world's finest exhibits of Northwest Coast First Nations art. Our collection includes 36,000 ethnographic pieces, 535,000 archaeological pieces, and over 600 pieces in the Kroner Ceramics Gallery. There's a lot to take in. Luckily at the Museum of Anthropology, final exams are always take home. If you've never checked out this world-class facility, now's your chance. The Museum of Anthropology is located right on campus and free for all UBC students and faculty. Come enjoy our collection and resources. CITR 101.9 FM and Bad Bird present the Vancouver Horror Convention, Sunday, October 31st, from noon to 6 p.m. at Planet Bingo, 2655 Main Street, two blocks south of Main and Broadway. The Vancouver Horror Convention, featuring dark art exhibition, visual effects makeup competition, gore burlesque, film screens, door prizes for killer costumes, and local vendors of comics, posters, fashion, video, and more. Tickets are $5 at the door. There are no minors allowed. The Vancouver Horror Convention, Sunday, October 31st, from noon to 6 p.m. at Planet Bingo, 2655 Main Street, two blocks south of Main and Broadway. Visit www.badbird.tv or find us on Facebook for more information. Hey, we're back on the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. That ad just kept going. It just kept playing some crazy rock music. How rude. Don't they know I'm on the air? <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so we still got... Uh, th this is halftime, so uh, let me tell you what we still have. Um, we have Vessel by Out Inner Space Dance Theatre, which I will tell you about in a moment. We also have After the Quake, which was a huge hit last year, a play about uh, survival in uh, 1995 uh, Japan, and it's sort of a, a mix of uh, reality and fantasy, a surrealist, uh, magic realism uh, concoction. And uh, Richard Wolf of Pi Theatre will tell us all about that. And then we also have uh, Jasper Sloan Yip, who is uh, a musician who's turning up at all kinds of venues, most recently at, uh, at 30 Live. And we'll also be at uh, the Kulch. That's right, he'll be at the Kulch and the Railway Club um, in the next few days. So he's a busy guy. We'll hear from him. And uh, we'll also hear about the film Foreign Parts, which is screening tonight uh, and tomorrow at the Vancouver International Film Festival, which is going to be wrapping up this weekend. Uh, although I should add that there are still tons of films uh, to be seen in the next few days, uh, including, uh, let me just pull this up here, including an announcement that I just got at the uh, arts uh, email about um, some films, some extra films that have been added. So I'll tell you about those uh, later. And uh, let's see what else I should tell you. I should give you a couple of um, 
the, the lowdown on a few things going on, including the, the park, which is a musical at Langara, which we featured last week on the Arts Report, and you can catch that in our podcast at citr.ca if you missed last week's show. Uh, the park is, about, is a musical that sort of um, celebrates the weird and, weird and wackiness of... Weirdness and wackiness? Yeah, weirdness and wackiness of Vancouver, and is about um, a developer who wants to pave Stanley Park and, um, and the, um, the activist hippies who want to stop him. So that's a lot of fun, and that's going on until October 17th at Studio 58, which is, of course, at Langara College. And, um, and you can um, check it out for $12 on matinees. Um, you can see it. Uh, it's on every night except for Monday at 8 p.m., Tuesday through to Saturday. And um, student prices are $17, students and seniors. Otherwise, they range from 18 to 22 depending on the day. And tickets tonight. .ca is where you can get those tickets. Also, Canzine West, which celebrates uh, magazines um, and, and sort of the, uh, the local arts scene. And um, they, this is coming up on October 16th, Saturday, at 1 p.m. until 7 p.m. at W2 Storium. It's officially called Canzine West Zine Fair and Festival of Alternative Culture, and it's only five bucks. And uh, what do you get to see? Why, you get to... Uh, I guess we'll have the opportunity to hear readings from Broken Pencil's Canlit Fiction Anthology and other new releases. Learn about peep culture. Peep culture? What is that? Is that like voyeurism? I don't know. From somebody at Broken Pencil's... Um, sorry, you'll hear about peep culture. And you'll also watch poetry collide with improv comedy. You can view art, create art, buy handmade goods, watch indie short films, and pick through vintage treasures and more. Actually, sounds like a lot of fun. So that's uh, that's Saturday, and um, and there's another cool show that we just couldn't fit in today, um, which is called um, Grease Does Grease, inspired by the burlesque musicals of the 19th century when women shocked the world by appearing as scantily clad sexual aggressors in satires of the popular theater of the time. Grease Does Grease tells ancient the ancient story of the seasons through parodies of the music of Greece and Greece 2, you know, the John Travolta kind of Greece. Um, and that's running from October the... Sorry, from the 13th to the 16th. So it started on the 7th to the 10th and is still on from the 13th until the 16th. So go check that out. Shows begin at 8.15 at the Waterfront Theater on Granville Island. And um, tickets are 23 dollars uh 19 years must be 19 years or older so it's salacious and saucy and um should be fun all right so those are my announcements let's get back to it vessel the creative duo of out inner space dance theater tiffany tregarson and david raymond have wowed audiences at the vancouver international dance festival with their intriguing duets and now they've created their first full-length quintet I spoke to Tiffany Tregarson about Vessel, an investigation of inner space. And uh, here we start with Tiffany explaining how it all came about. Um, well, it started with, um, with film research that uh, my partner David Raymond and I did uh, in Belgium starting in 2006. And um, it was also our first time having a um, camera. Uh, so we were working on macro, macro images. Mm-hmm. of micro micro subjects and movement. So oh, I see. basically that yeah, we had um a big a big lens that basically looks at things like particles in air and oil separating from water and um maybe goosebumps rising on skin, mm-hmm. movements of birds in, in packs. And 
and uh, we would take those images, study them, filter them, process them in a way that we could just reduce it down to the pure movement or the pure essence of, of uh, the, the moment where things separate or join or collide or have some kind of friction. And then is that translated into dance? Well, that becomes, well, when we first saw it, we immediately um, found that those patterns in the small things, rep when they're duplicated, mm -hmm. uh, mathematically, they represent larger things. So these small separations look like big landscapes. Um, they look like weather. And we found that it, um, it inspired us to put dancers in front of it, and then also for those spaces to reflect the, the, those projections to reflect inner space as well, so a mental, a mental room or an emotional landscape. So they actually become the inner and outer environment for the dance to take place. Interesting. And uh, give me a sense visually of what, uh, what people will see in the show. Uh, there's five dancers, including the choreographers, David and myself. And we begin as um, a population of objects, maybe even hieroglyphic or questionably animate. We sort of embody the space like vessels or shapes in a form with function. Uh, we go through uh, an evolution of movement that brings us from small organisms to people, to real life, living, standing, moving, moving objects in space that have a psychology, that have, that have a history, that have relationships with each other. So it, it seems to me that, that you guys are very um, interested in space. I mean, the company is called Out Inner Space, right? Exactly. And so I wonder what what is the relevance, or, or what is what is it that um, inspires you about the, the topic of space? Well, I think for David and I, um, meeting as a contemporary ballet-focused dancer and him as a contemporary urban hip-hop dancer, we found that there was a, a big tension between the way that we actually use our bodies in space, that negotiation of how we use our limbs, how we travel, how we like to partner, how we like to see formations. And then also a lot of um, negotiation between what types of mental and emotional spaces um, and inspirations we like to use in the work. So that is a huge part of our collaboration in making movement innovation and also in being inspired with themes and concepts. So that's why the company is called Out Inner Space. Mm -hmm. It's also because um, well, we just feel like the, the definition of inner space, those those unknown territories, that place within where we hold memory, where we hold history, maybe where our imagination comes from, that those are the things that we are most interested in. And those are things we're constantly studying, no matter what, that, those build, that perspective builds our relationship with how we see the world and how we see ourselves in it. So it seemed really um, appropriate for the name of our company and also the subject for our first premiere. And that was Tiffany Tregarson who will be uh, involved in this work, which is coming October uh, 20th until the 23rd at the Roundhouse Community Centre at 8pm, which is, of course, the corner of Davy and Pacific. Tickets are 25 for adults, $20 for students, seniors, and CADA. What is C-A-D-A? I don't know what that is. Someone should tell me. Um, you can get more info and at this website, www.outinnerspace.com. Ca. And if you check out the website, you'll also be able to see clips of their dance. And uh, that will give you uh, a better idea than any interview can about um, what they do, the, the movements and um, the sort of um, the abstractness of their dancing um, and the sort of t the stories that they tell uh, through movement. You'll get a better sense of, um, 
of what it is that they do uh, on their website. So check it out, outinnerspace.ca. Okay, um, next, moving right along after the quake. Acclaimed local theatre companies Pi Theatre and Rumble Productions are bringing back last year's critical and popular hit After the Quake, a magic realist story of survival in 1995 Japan, where there was a terror attack in Tokyo and an earthquake in Kobe. Now, I spoke to Richard Wolf last night, just after some last-minute fine-tuning at the Kulch ahead of tonight's opening night show. So here is uh, Richard Wolf telling us um, what the show is about. Well, After the Quake was written by um, a very famous Japanese novelist and short story writer named Haruki Murakami. And um, these uh, plays, this play is actually based on two short stories from the anthology After the Quake. And the uh, play, uh, the short stories uh, that are that um, are the source material for this play, are Super Frog Saves Tokyo, and Honey Pie. Okay. And um, the uh, Super Frog Saves Tokyo uh, is a phantasmagorical story about a six-foot frog who shows up at this bank clerk's house apartment one night, and uh, in trying to recruit him to help him fight a giant earthquake worm to save Tokyo from destruction. <laughs> And the other short story uh, is a, a more traditional love story. It's kind of unrequited love. And Frank Galati of Steppenwolf Theatre in Chicago adapted these two short stories into one play he called After the Quake. And uh, Craig and I uh, got together a, a, about two years ago now and uh, got the rights for the Canadian premiere of this uh, play, which we did last year at Studio 16, last December. And uh, we were uh, thrilled, very happy, when the cults... Um, talked to us about opening their season with a, a, a remount of the same production mm -hmm. uh, that we did last year right now. So we're, we're thrilled to be able to do that in this uh, beautiful historic culture. Mm. Now tell me a bit about the challenges um, as a director to have these phantasmagorical fantasy elements with traditional narrative. What's, uh, what are the challenges there in, in making that work? Well, um, obviously, uh, the question we always get asked is, well, what are you going to do about the frog? How are you going to you know, <laughs> produce a six-foot frog? Is it going to be a puppet? Are you going to dress somebody up in a giant frog suit? You know, what are you going to do? Uh, we actually um, didn't want to do puppets, and we didn't want to do giant frog suits. So, Shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we did do, though, is uh, we used uh, lights, costuming, and uh, sound. Uh, we treated sound with a, a, a really brilliant sound designer that we have uh, doing the composition, musical composition for this play and the sound effects uh, created some uh, fantastic uh, effects that make this whole thing move into the dream state a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned earlier about uh, this idea that it was based on disasters. Well, Murakami uh, was from uh, Japan, obviously, in Kobe. Uh, the city that uh, was struck by a massive earthquake in 1995, and it changed a lot of people's lives. So the essence of it is uh, how catastrophe might push us out of our usual stasis. You know how, at least <laughs> for me, I get caught in routines. I find myself doing the same things often and thinking the same way often. Uh, and I would imagine that if there was a massive earthquake in Vancouver, I wouldn't think the same way mm. uh, You know, after that experience. And that's what happened in Japan. Um, so this, these two stories feature characters that, uh, after the catastrophe, are moved, pushed out of their 
out of their day-to-day routines and out of their uh, you know, habitual way of thinking into new action and new life. So it's a very positive you know, play in that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, fantastic actors in it as well. <clears throat> and uh, give me a, a preview or a taste of uh, some of uh, the, the projects that Pi is working on for the months ahead. Well, in the international vein, Pai is actually featuring uh, audacious writers. We're interested in the strong ethereal voice, the, the, the strong voice with a contemporary vision, and uh, that's one reason we were interested in Murakami. We're doing in November at PTC, Playwrights Theatre Centre, PTC, uh, readings of works in new translations from Catalonia, Spain. So three plays uh, in new English translations that we're working through, uh, the writers are coming over from Spain to hear their work being done in English. And in uh, January, February, at the Push Festival, we're co-presenting with the Push Festival a fantastic contemporary piece from Poland, which uh, features a rock and roll band and some I mean, really great uh, 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 great story with great performances, very dynamic piece in the solitude of cotton fields. So you can check out the Push brochure, which will be coming out shortly for that. All right, and that was Richard Wolf talking about After the Quake, which is coming to the Culch, and it begins tonight, and will be running until the 23rd um, at 8 p.m. every night, and tickets range from $15 to $45, uh, and there's a few uh, specific shows that I would like to tell you about, including October 14th, which is tomorrow. It's two-for-one ticket night, and then on the 16th, uh, there's a matinee. Uh, and on the 17th and the 19th, there's a post-show talkback where you can ask the cast questions. And the cast um, includes uh, Hiro Kanagawa, who has been in a million different um, productions, everything from Da Vinci's City Hall to The Sixth Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Excess Baggage, you know, Alicia Silverstone, that one, and, um, and, tons, of, and tons of shows. He's a fixture of the, the Vancouver movie um, I guess, uh, film and theater uh, scene, as well as a nine-year-old Lena Duick. So, uh, yeah, great cast, and, um, and, and still um, Richard being coy about what kind of frog, what kind of uh, frog manifestation there will be in the show. You'll just have to go and see for yourself. All right, and uh, right, and I'll also tell you that uh, tickets are available at tickets.thecouch.com, and then you should also check out the websites of the two producing companies, pietheater.com and rumble.org. Rumble has a really fun website where when you click on uh, different um, headings, um, the words actually rumble and make noise. So if nothing else, it's uh, fun to move the mouse around. Okay, next we have uh, Jasper Sloan Yip, the interestingly named acoustic local rocker who has been gaining ground on CBC Radio 3, our arch nemesis, uh, on the charts with his tune Slowly. On the heels of his appearance at 30 Live last uh, Thursday, which of course is Vancouver's newest bi-weekly celebration of indie rock, he's coming to the Railway Club tomorrow night. Arts Report correspondent Elena Metz caught up with him at the venue at 30 Live. And we uh, start with, uh, she started by asking him um, about how his, uh, his song slowly uh, got onto the charts. They, I got an email from the CBC one week, and they said that they put my album in rotation. And then the next week, uh, I got an email saying that we broke the top 30, and then we climbed up to number four after it took 10 weeks. But it was, yeah, it was really cool. Very unexpected. Okay. And you traveled a lot. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite venue? 
Um, well, I haven't played very much outside of Vancouver. We're, we're going to do that next year. So in Vancouver? Vancouver, my favorite venue that I've ever played was probably St. James Hall. Yeah. Have you ever been to St. James Hall? It's like a big church in, in Kitsilano. Really, really, yeah, nice space. Yeah. And what inspires your songs? Uh, usually it's when I screw up. I write about that a lot. I write about, um, it's, it's all very literal and personal. And it's kind of, it's kind of hard. Sometimes it's, 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 real, sometimes it's usually like literal and personal, but at other times I try and like distance myself from the things I write about and I sort of write in code, if that makes sense. What's special about your music? I heard you play a lot of instruments. I, I, well, I play mostly guitar. I play a little bit of banjo, a little bit of ukulele, a little, little bit of bass. Um, but my band mates, they all play different instruments. Um, Stephanie plays violin, and Mark plays bass and banjo and lap steel and mandolin. And uh, uh, we've got keyboards. And among all of us, we have a lot of different kinds of instruments. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Where do you see your band in five years? I hope I still have my band. Like it's it's hard to say because it's it's tough being in a band, you know. Like people, um, everyone's got their own lives, and it's hard to keep all of us together. But I hope I'm just still making records and playing shows, hopefully touring a lot. And yeah. Um, do you have upcoming shows? Yeah, I am. We're playing. I'm playing the Cult on Saturday. I'm playing the Railway Club on Thursday, the 14th. Uh, and then we're going to Kelowna for Breakout West Festival. We're playing on the 22nd and the 23rd at Dock Willoughby's and then at the Habitat. Yeah. Cool, thanks. Yeah. And that was Jasper Sloan Yip uh, being interviewed by our correspondent Elena Metz, who you may have noticed is German. And I have to say, I really love when Germans say the word cool because they say cool. Yeah, it's really cool, which I think is awesome. Sorry, sorry, Elena, that was embarrassing, but um, but it's great. I love it. Now, uh, so let me tell you about these two events that Jasper Sloniep will be attending as a performer. Uh, one is the Railway Club uh, that tomorrow. Tickets are ten dollars, and doors open at eight thirty. The show begins at nine thirty, and this is a fundraiser for Media Democracy Day. Media Democracy Day will be on November the sixth at Vancouver Public Library, and it's sort of um, it's sort of a, a celebration of the democratization of of journalism. So you know the way that journalism is you know citizen journalism, you know bloggers and that kind of thing has become um, has come into the forefront, and uh, they will have uh, speakers and discussions on that topic. And so there's a fundraiser at the Railway Club tomorrow. He'll be there, and then he'll also be at Sad Mag Live. On Saturday night at the Culch, Sad Mag Live will so showcase the ideas and talents of trailblazers in Vancouver's arts communities, those who led the way in music, theater, fine art, and storytelling. The event features interviews with Graham Berglund, the founder of The Cheaper Show and guest on The Arts Report, Cameron Reed, director of Music Waste and guest on uh, The Arts Report, uh, as well as many others. And they will be there to talk about the future of Vancouver's art communities. And Jasper Sloan Yip is performing, so check uh, that out. You can go to theculch.com uh, and, and find the events page to, to get more details on that. All right, well, we are nearing the end of the show, which is good because we have just one more feature for you, and this one is for the Vancouver International Film Festival. And, um, and the film is called Foreign 
parts. And um, filmmakers uh, Verena Paravel and J.P. Snydecki, or if he's Polish, it's Sniadecki, uh, explore a neighborhood of junkyards and salvage shops in New York in the North American premiere of this film, Foreign Parts. Now Nick Panu tells us more. Listeners, right now we are on the line with uh, the co-director and co-producer for the film Foreign Parts, which uh, screens at the Vancouver International Film Festival uh, October 13th and 14th. Uh, we have this pleasure of speaking to J.P. Sniadowski. Uh, how are you doing? And thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to get in touch. What was the motivation, um, or, or how did it all manifest that uh, you ended up in uh, Queens, New York, uh, filming this, filming your documentary? Well, I think the, the sort of story goes back to Verena, who's the co-director as well of the film, Verena Paravel. She was making a film about the 7 train that runs between Manhattan and uh, Queens. And uh, on her way of filming, she was just sort of walking under the train every day and filming whatever chance encounters she found. And she started flushing and started walking towards Manhattan, so she was walking west. And the second stop was Willits Point, which is this kind of amazing, impressive stretch of, uh, of junkyards and chop shops and factories, and sort of an industrial enclave with people from all over the world, a kind of cosmopolitan mixture of people, international uh, group of workers, a lot of them immigrants with papers, without papers. And the kind of visual and oral impression of the place, I think, really struck her. Uh, all the, you know, the auto body parts being organized in very precise ways, the, the sort of neglect from the city, on the other hand, the neglect from the city of, of you know, not putting in roads and not really building up the infrastructure of the place, but yet still people still surviving through kind of um, any means necessary. And so she she uh, had known about my work and called me up um, while I was in China working on the film. And I, uh, when I got back in September of 2008, we went down there together and started filming together. And I was totally taken with the place, the people that we met. And we started making friends in the place. And then filming together and, and our collaboration was quite quite wonderful and organic and we went from there. In the process of filming this documentary, was uh, was it kind of uh, that one of your priorities was maybe to develop some relationships with people in the neighborhood to, to, to get that true essence in, into your film? Absolutely. I mean, we work from a kind of uh, a twofold. I, I'd say our, our, our work is informed by two things. One is, of course, since we're both anthropologists, we're very much committed to the idea of spending time with people, uh, making a film with people rather than about people. And so that kind of collaborative nature and that relationship building was a part of our approach from day one. We didn't want to just fly, or, you know, stop and fly in and fly out, as, as they say. We weren't journalists. Um, and not that I'm saying anything bad about journalists. Just oh, that's well, okay. <laughs> our, our, our time was our time was able to be more flexible. And then the the second thing is just our sort of commitment to a kind of cinema, a cinematic approach that is invested in 
again, in, in the, the characters and the people that make up a place and in the rhythms, just very quotidian, banal, everyday things uh, of people's lives that make that place the special place that it is. And we wanted to give attention to that rather than, you know, make it just a film about politics or just a film about uh, immigrant, you know, labor. We wanted to make a film that balanced all the aspects of people's lives and gave equal treatment to the people in the place and into the material objects, the car parts, the architecture, the potholed, uh, muddy lanes that, that cut up the place. We wanted to give attention to all of the, the things that make it the environment that it is. Gentrification is becoming uh, common in uh, many of the major cities in uh, North America. And what it does to a neighborhood, how it totally wipes out the essence, the, the community. Making this film, were you kind of maybe motivated a, a little more to maybe send a message or to convey how much, what that does, the kind of destruction that, that creates, the gentrifying a whole, a whole neighborhood? Right, yeah, I mean, like, cities are constantly going through changes all the time, and and urbanism takes many forms, and it definitely means that communities get dislocated, get relocated, and displaced, and moved around. And that's true of the worldwide, and not just in North America. And I don't know that we were trying to make a film that was trying to sort of uh, create a black and white image of gentrification. I think we were more interested in making a film that was um, somehow uh, a, a film that was that, that showed our affection for the place as it is now. What, despite what the future might bring. And uh, Foreign Parts uh, screens this coming October 13th and 14th. Thanks so much, Nick. All right. And um, so there's a lot of films, as you heard uh, about that one. There's also um, other uh, shows being um, being presented and represented. Sorry, I'm just pulling it out of my inbox right now from VIF, uh, an email called Final Highlights and, and VIF Repeats. Um, there's a few sort of holdovers due to uh, popular demand. Let me quickly tell you about what those are. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Um, ooh. Um, okay, there's one here called Shooting with Mercy. More extraordinarily exotic than Lenny Reifenstahl's Africa, this unique work has um, co-director somebody patrolling his tribe's ancient lands, etc., etc. I won't bore you with all the details, but if you go to vif.org slash festival, or just vif.org, um, and you'll be able to navigate and find out what the holdovers are for the last few days of the festival and, um, and see... Um, and see all the films um, that are still coming. Um, all right, so that's the end of our program today. Um, thank you for listening. I want to thank uh, Simon Dorn for doing the sound for me today. It makes my life a whole lot easier. I hope you've noticed as well that things are running a little bit more smoothly than they have in the past. And um, join us again uh, next week for another exciting arts report. Uh, you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM and Real to Real is next.